You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. When you and I catch a vision for discipleship, that's when we're going to see the world change. Let me say that again. When you and I catch a vision for discipleship, that's when we're going to see the world begin to change. When you and I stop just giving lip service to the command that God's given us to make disciples, and we make that our personal, unrelenting ambition, that's when we're going to see the world begin to change. Conferences don't change the world. Big worship gatherings don't change the world. Celebrity preachers don't change the world. Disciple makers change the world. In 2017, and every moment from here forward really has to be about one thing for us, and that's us making disciples. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that means that you have been given this command by God to make disciples, and it is your duty to give your life to that mission. So let me just say this. I know we're coming hot out of the gate here, 2017, but let me say this up front. 2017, let's quit playing church, and let's actually join Jesus in his mission. In 2017, let's quit playing the, 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 the casual, convenient, comfortable, uh, cultural Christianity game, and let's actually commit to doing what God commanded us to do, which is to make disciples. And tonight, we're starting a new study, 2 Timothy. Uh, seven weeks, we're going to be in this book. And if you're new here, uh, if this is new to you, this is something that we love to do in here. We love to study through entire books of the Bible uh, in six years, this will be our ninth book of the Bible to study through. Uh, in 2012, we studied through 1 Timothy. Uh, was anybody here for that study, 1 Timothy 2012? Let me see your hand up in the air. One, a couple, graduate already, people, geez. Uh, <laughs> but you know, there's a pretty huge difference if you've read 1 Timothy and we're going to study 2 Timothy. There's a huge difference in the tone of voice between the two letters. By the time Paul writes this second letter to his man Timothy... Uh, Paul's now in his second imprisonment in Rome, and he knows that he's about to be executed, probably uh, have his head cut off, very similar to these videos that have been put out by ISIS of them beheading their Christian prisoners. So Paul was first imprisoned in Rome. The first time he was imprisoned in Rome, uh, he was under house arrest. So he was relatively loosely guarded. He was able to continue doing a lot of the work, running the church, or at least continuing to expand his mission, expand God's mission throughout Europe, throughout Asia, by sending out guys and communicating with the church. But by the time he was in prison the second time, it was totally different. No longer was he under house arrest. Now he was in, you know, history shows us he was in this hole in the ground. This is one of the ways they imprisoned people during the Roman Empire. He's in this hole in the ground that had a, a little opening in the top big enough for air and light to get in. In fact, if you just kind of uh, just glance through this letter, you see um, some evidence of his imprisonment. Chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So verse 8, he makes it very clear, like he's not metaphorically saying I'm a prisoner for God. He's literally a prisoner for God. You get down to verse 16, and he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So here, not only is he saying he's in prison, but he's actually in chains. He says again, chapter 2, verse 9, he says, for which I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal. So he's in this hole in the ground, little opening in the top for light and air to get in. And on top of that, he is chained up like a criminal. And uh, you read verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17, going backwards there. He says, but when he, that dude he just named in verse 16, arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Earnestly meaning like night and day until he found him. 
You know, this was different than being under house arrest. People knew where Paul was, but now he's in a hole in the ground, so his, his friend, when he got there, had to, like, search forever just to find him. It's a really cruddy situation. And then you see in chapter 4 evidence that Paul knew he was about to die. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He knows he's about to be executed. The tone of this letter is intense. That's the point I want you to see. The tone of 2 Timothy is intense. It's, it's almost like he's, he's, he's writing his last will and testament. John Calvin, as he writes about uh, this, this letter, he said, It was written not merely in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. Paul, he's passionately charging Timothy with two things. One, he's saying, dude, you got to persevere. Hard times are here and more hard times are coming. You have to persevere. And two, he is charging Timothy to, to take on this work that Paul had started to essentially fill Paul's massive gospel sandals. He's given this charge to Timothy. Paul writes with urgency. And in the same way that he writes with urgency, listen, I want to teach you this letter with urgency. Um, how, many, how many freshmen are in here tonight? Let me see. Raise a hand. That's, 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 that's good. Some of y'all aren't raising your hand because you're like, second semester, I don't want to be called a freshman anymore. Show some, show some respect. Some of y'all, this drives me nuts, okay? Like when freshmen come in and they've got like 25 dual credit classes that they took in high school that really aren't even college classes. They don't, I mean, they're just so much easier. But they come in and, and you're like, you know, so obviously the first year, it's very clear they're a freshman because they look like it and everything. But you say, so what year are you? And they're like, well, I'm like a junior. Uh, because they, you know, hours-wise, and I'm like, no, you're not. You're a freshman. Call yourself what you are. Stop lying to people. Um, so those of you who didn't raise your hand, then you're included in this, too, if this is your first year in college, okay? So all the freshmen in here, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, except for those who took, like, 85-hour, you know, double-credit hours in high school, for most of you, for the others of you, you're sitting here thinking, okay, even though you've completed one semester, still graduation, is, it seems like forever away from now, right? Am I right? Graduation feels like, yeah, it's forever away. And here's how I know this. I know this because how many seniors in the room tonight? Let me see your hand. Yeah, we've got quite a few of you too. Now listen, here's freshmen. Here's how I know that graduation feels like forever from now for you because those seniors, even though they're graduating in somewhere around five months from now, it still feels like forever from now to the point that, that they're over it. Like they're showing up this semester, like throwing in the towel. I don't even care. I don't even care what letter you give me. Just give me something that will get me a degree. GPA is overrated. Like I don't, and, and here's the thing. Like they came into college uh, they came into college just like you when you were a freshman in a dead sprint, like looking at college, big eyes, thinking, I got this. I'm going to dominate this. I'm going to make good grades. Uh, I'm going to be like organized and stuff. So like the first week, your bag's organized and, uh, and your, your school stuff is organized. Your dorm room's actually organized to the point that it looks like a picture from one of those Bed Bath Beyond uh, catalogs. Um, and, and you're thinking, I'm going to get involved in all these different things. Like you're thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in all these uh, organizations and extracurricular activity and all this stuff, and I'm going to make dean's list, which never happened. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a good GPA. I'm going to have all these. I'm, I'm going to attack college like they're at a dead sprint. But now, senior year, last semester, they're like barely a crawl as they're trying to get to the finish line. Uh, and, and I mean, it's it's bad. Like they might go to class this week, and it's the first week. Uh, yeah, priest, you know what I'm talking about. They haven't changed their sheets on their bed since the beginning of last semester. Uh, it's just no priest. You change your sheets? Okay, that's good. Um, but here's my point. My point is, for, for these seniors' graduation, even though it's close, it still feels like forever from now. But here, here's, here's what's going to happen. When they walk the stage, hopefully, in a few months, 
when they walk the stage and they get their fake diploma, because they don't give you the real thing, because they want to tally up the grades and make sure you actually did pass. When they walk the stage in a few months and get their fake diploma, it's going to hit them. And suddenly, you seniors, you're going to realize, dang, like it's over. This stuff that I was praying, Lord Jesus, bless me and make this end immediately, is going to be over. You're going to be like, man, those past four, five, seven years, like, flew by. (laughs) But you have to hear this. Freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors. If you're not careful, before you know it, you're going to be walking across that stage, leaving college with nothing more than a degree, a few new friends, and a few fond memories. None of which, in and of themselves, have any eternal value. Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy. They can't destroy there. And thieves don't break in and steal. I am, I am, I am pleading with you tonight. I am begging you tonight. To wake up from the lie that college is all about getting a degree. I am pleading with you tonight to wake up from the lie that college is all about making new friends and and making some new memories. Because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, college and all of life for that matter is all about one thing, and that is making disciples, joining Jesus in his mission to change the world. And so you look at this text. So Paul, he's, he's in prison. He knows he's about to die. And he's been, he has been commissioned by God himself with this crazy huge mission to be, his light, to be God's like main guy to spark uh, the movement of the gospel throughout all the nations. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Jesus, as he talks about Paul, he says, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Basically, Gentiles, everybody not Israel, and then the children of Israel. Israel, the whole stinking world. So Paul, he is in prison. He knows he's about to be executed. And this is his last chance to make sure that this mission that he's been commissioned with actually happens. So he's writing to Timothy. What's he going to tell Timothy? But tonight, you know, we're kicking off the study. We're going to study through the whole book verse by verse. Tonight, though, we're not going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start with the verse that I think really this whole letter hinges on and that really captures the, not only the tone of Paul's voice, but the meat of his message for this whole letter. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And listen to what Paul says. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was Paul's plan for how he was going to keep his work going long after he was dead. And by the way, it was Jesus' plan. Matthew 28. So he says, And what you've heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to circle that verse 
Circle that verse, and then out to the side in the margin, I want you to write, this is discipleship. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Circle that out to the side. This is discipleship. Now, I understand as I'm talking, there's new people here tonight. I met some, some people tonight. It's your first time. Um, and some of you, I realize, so you, you're, you're new here. You're not like this is church or college ministry, whatever. It's, it's, it's not normal for you. Maybe you are like exploring Jesus. You don't necessarily believe in Jesus yet. Um, and so to hear this big word discipleship thrown out, you're like, I don't really, I, I already feel out of place. Now I feel totally out of the loop. I'm about to put you in the loop because I'm going to explain to you what discipleship is. In fact, this verse uh, really tells us two things. One, it says how you disciple or how you make disciples. And it also tells us why you make disciples. So essentially we see what discipleship is from this verse. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 2. Easy way to remember this is 2-2-2. 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 2, 2, 2, 2. And he says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the first part he says, let's chop this up. He says, what you've heard from me. Now, if you look at that verse and, and you look at, okay, this was written in Greek again, so this is important. Getting a little nerdy on you for a second. The tense of that verse is unique because it implies that when Paul says to Timothy, what you've heard from me, he's not talking about a one-time event. It implies that he's talking about a lot of events, a series of events where Paul is either, A, taking Timothy and intentionally teaching Timothy or maybe some other people with Timothy, or B, he's intentionally bringing Timothy along with him while he teaches other people so Timothy can be there to learn and watch and see how he does it. So he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Here's, here's, here's what's communicated here about discipleship. Discipleship is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. The other thing is, discipleship is not accidental. It's very intentional. You don't make disciples accidentally. If you've been around this ministry for any period of time, you've heard me say that a bunch. You don't make disciples accidentally. You make disciples intentionally. So he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. That word entrust is a compound word in the Greek, which essentially means to, to set before or to place before. It's the same word that you see used in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people, then he does it again with 4,000 people. And it's used where it says they, the disciples set the loaves and the fish before the people. That's the word. A lot of times this word entrust that's translated to set before in other places, a lot of times that word is used in the context of food. So here's what you see wrapped up in there. Discipleship is a lot like feeding someone a meal. But think about this. When you feed somebody a meal, uh, you don't just feed anybody. Like you don't force somebody to eat food. You feed people who are what? Hungry. That's why he says entrust to faithful men. So he gets to faithful men. Essentially what Paul's saying is what I've intentionally taught you over time, I want you to feed Feed it to people who are hungry. So entrust to faithful men. Entrust it. Teach it to, to, to hungry people. People who want it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10 verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, he's saying there are hungry people out there. It's plentiful. There's a lot of hungry people out there. Our job is to go find them and to feed them. So here's kind of a working definition of discipleship for us. 
Discipleship is an intentional and ongoing process. Don't try to write this down. Listen to the podcast later. Discipleship is an intentional and ongoing process of teaching people who want to be taught who Jesus is and how to follow him. Discipleship is an intentional and ongoing process of teaching people who want to be taught. We're teaching them who Jesus is and how to follow him. That's how you make disciples. That's what discipleship is. Now for the why of discipleship. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2, 2, 2. He says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now think about this. Paul's teaching Timothy how to make disciples. So looking at that verse, how many generations of disciples do you see there? Some of y'all have been in, you know, my classes before. I'm jumping out with four. Yeah, four. I mean, look at this. So, so Paul's one writing this letter to Timothy. So when he's talking, you've got to identify the pronouns. He says, what you've heard from me, me is Paul. What you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul. So Paul's talking to Timothy. He's saying, Paul's saying to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, that's generation number three, who will be able to teach others also. Four generations. And this one measly little verse, 222. What you've heard from me in the presence of, or, well, yeah, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Me, you, men, others. Four generations. Now, here's what's crazy about this when you think about it. Here, here's the reality, whether you realize this or not. You and I today are being impacted by Paul's work 2,000 years ago. Like, here, here's the point, of, and we'll get into that in a second, but here's the point of discipleship. The purpose of discipleship is to pass the message of the gospel from one generation to the next generation, who will then pass it to the next generation, who will then pass it to the next generation, who will then pass it to the next generation, who will then pass it to the next generation, and you get the point. Why we make disciples. Now, here's the thing. Christians today have abandoned discipleship because we have become more enthralled with or impressed by the flash in the pan. Christians today, we've abandoned discipleship because instead of doing the math and thinking long-term, we're thinking short-term. And that's why there's so many mega-churches and mega-conferences, but very little discipleship. And consequently, that's why even though these big old churches and worship gatherings are getting bigger and bigger and these conferences are getting bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger, that's why consequently, even though those are getting bigger and bigger, Christianity and God's kingdom, at least in America, is getting smaller and smaller. It's simple math. And let me, let me, let me explain to you what I mean by it's simple math. So the typical model today is hire church staff and they, and they do the work, you know? Church staff works for the church. And so they are there to, you know, to serve you and give you services and, you know, whatever. So let's go with that model. So that model basically functions like this. Let's, I'll be the church staff, ironically. Uh, and let's say that every single day I share the gospel with one person and lead that one person to Christ. Let's say every day 
I'm leading one person to Jesus. I'm not discipling them. That, that takes more than a day. That takes more time. Okay? But I'm leading, I'm sharing the gospel with and leading one person to Christ every day. Every single day. So if we go with that model, then, which, I mean, that's ambitious, right? Like, some of you haven't ever had that even experience. One, I'm not saying that in a, you know, kick you way. I'm saying that just reality. But probably few of us have had that happen like consecutive days, you know? But let's just say, I'm doing that every single day. Ambitious goal. In one year, how many people are we going to have? 365. Trick question, 366 if you include me. But we'll say 365 because that's all my other math on the page. 365. Now let's say I do that every year. So in two years, how many people are we going to have? 730. 730. Thank you, Ethan. 730. That's two years. In three years, how many are we going to have, Ethan? 1,095, right? Am I right? That's, I think, what's on my paper. Yeah, 1,095. Picture memory, not math. Picture memory. Four years, we're going to have 1,460 people. Five years, 1,825. Ten years, skipping now, five years. So, ten years, 3,650. Fifteen years, 5,475. Twenty years, 7,300. That's a lot of people, right? That's a whole lot of people. Now, if you track the gro- here's what's interesting. If you track the growth of most big churches, that's pretty close to the rate at which they grow. I mean, you look at 10 years down the road. Now, there's some that grow faster, but you look at 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road, 20 years down the road, you're looking at a pretty similar rate of growth. Now, that's impressive, but it's a flash in the pan. There's a thing called the life cycle of the church. There's actually been a lot of studies on this, and it shows Pretty much any church in existence now or in all of history goes through a pre, like, not a predetermined, but, well, God's sovereign, so yeah. Uh, but, like, goes through a predictable, there's the word I was looking for, the, a predictable life cycle. And it starts with initially being formed and then typically rapid growth. Then it hits this peak, and then it typically plateaus for a little bit, but then it begins this slow decline and eventual death. Now, sometimes somebody will come in and rejuvenate that, that church, and then it'll kind of do the same thing again, but it won't do that too many times. Eventually, a church is going to die. I mean, think about it. How many of the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 and 4, how many of those churches are in existence today? Church at Ephesus, Sardis, Laodicea, Thyatira, Philadelphia. Some of you are like, I've been to Philly and saw some churches there. That's not one of those churches. How many of those churches are in existence today? None of them. None of them. And that's because the mega church model, the mega conference model, the big, you know, personality up on the platform, drawing people in, preaching all these tweetable phrases, having thousands of followers, that's not the model that God chose to change the world. It's simple math. So now let me show you what discipleship, what the discipleship model looks like. So the discipleship model, instead of, instead of me spending every day for every year leading one person to Christ, what if I instead 
take one guy, and I, I want this to be a visual thing, so Micah, come up here on the stage with me. I wanna, what if I take one guy, and uh, come on, hop up here. Nice, y'all give him a hand, good job, agility. Um, so I take, I, take, I take one guy, and, and for one year, I spend most of my time investing in him. This is the discipleship model. And I teach him during that who Jesus is, and I teach him during that how to follow Jesus. Whole year, one whole year. And then at the end of the year, I say, all right, Micah, now we're going to continue this process of discipleship between us, but now I want you to reproduce what we have been learning, what I've been teaching you the past year. So now I'm going to have him reproduce this model, and he's now supposed to go grab somebody else and disciple them. But I'm not just going to say, hey, go figure it out. I'm going to actually show him. So come with me. I'm going to show you because I am going to reproduce as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to take Micah and... I'm gonna grab, I'm gonna grab, I'm gonna grab you. So, what's your name, man? Jose. Jose. I'm grabbing Jose. Uh, come on, Jose. Uh, so, I just found somebody. Did you see that happened? Okay. So now I want you to go do the same. Okay. So come on, I'll follow you, coach you along the way. Okay. He's got Chase. So, what's your name? Jose. Jose. So we got, we got Jose. Y'all, y'all stay down here. Y'all stay down here. So, so we got. We got Chase and Jose now, okay? But so, so year two. Year one, it was just me and Micah. Year two, now let's still, let's not go crazy and say, all right, let's go crazy and share Jesus with everybody and lead one person to Christ a day, et cetera. No, we're, I'm going to, now, year two, I'm going to continue to invest most of my time in Micah, but now I'm adding Jose to the mix, teaching both of them who Jesus is and how to follow Jesus. And Micah now, he's teaching Chase, which is good because Chase needs to learn this, who Jesus is. And how to follow Jesus. So that's year two. At the end of year two, here's what I'm going to say. It's time to reproduce this model again. So now I'm going to tell Micah, Micah, you see me do it, so I don't need to coach you through it. Um, so, but you need to coach him through it. So now y'all go find another person each. And then you haven't seen me do it. So now you're, you're going to, you saw me, but you know, you, you're going to come with me. Go find Micah and we'll meet back up here at the front. Um, so here, watch how I do this. I'm going to find some disciples. So come on, let's go. What's your name, man? Connor. Connor. Okay, now I got Connor. And, and Jose, you saw how I found Connor. Um, so now you need to go find a guy to disciple, okay? So I'm following you, man. I'll coach you along the way. Anyone. There's dudes over there. They're all, like, looking down. Don't pull me up. Uh, all right, Jose. So who we got here? Johnny. All right, come on. Get up, Johnny. So now let's, let's, go, let's go back over here, guys. So um, actually, y'all kind of meet, meet right here for me, would you? So Micah, Micah and, and Chase, they found two guys, and now me and Jose, we, we found two guys. So now, here's the deal. I'm still discipling Micah. This is year three, okay? Um, you know, I might set him loose. I could have set him loose year two because he's picking up on it. Um, but we'll just say, you know, Jesus discipled his guys for about three years, so I'm going to disciple him. for. I probably need to go four or five because I'm not Jesus. But <laughs> we'll just say Jesus is model. I'll stick with him at least for three years. And, uh, and now I've got Connor um, and Jose year two, okay? So now, we're on year three, spending year three, just investing. I'm just investing in to Micah, Connor, and Jose. And now, uh, Micah is investing in his two guys. And now, Chase is investing in his one guy. And, and now, Jose is investing in his one guy. But it's the end of year three. So it's time to reproduce the model again. Uh, but this time, see, I'm going to let you loose. We're still going to be friends, but I'm actually going to challenge you to move to a different city and actually go start a whole new process somewhere else. We'll call this plant a church. So y'all got to go find new guys. 
But I don't want y'all to come back here because I'm going to keep working here. I want you to end up somewhere over there in that unworked land. Look at all those heathens sitting over there. Okay? <laughs> all right, so let's reproduce the model. Now, um, you have done this already. You know how to do it. So teach, shoot, John, Johnny, uh, how to do this. And then we'll meet back here. Connor, I'm going to show you how to do this. Okay, Connor, come on. Uh, let's go. I got, I'm, going to, I'm going to grab Ethan. Come on, get up, Ethan. And uh, yes. Uh, Connor, uh, who, you, who you got? Here, we got... Come on. I... Well, well, well... That's a whole nother animal, so I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. All right, so now we've got... Now we've, we've reproduced this model. What year are we on? Year four? Okay, now look. This looks different now because now you have two clusters... Now you have two totally different cities or two totally different locations, two totally different parts of town. But now Micah, even though maybe we keep in contact some, I'm not really discipling him so much anymore, uh, maybe coaching from a distance, but now he is discipling who you have. You have, uh, you have Micah and Chase and John. Yeah, so, so he's got his three. Or his, yeah, he's got his three, and they got some of their guys. So now I got... I got, um, I still have, where's Connor? I got Connor, I got Jose, and now, because I let Micah go, I've added a third. I'm going to keep the stalls full at all time. And uh, I was thinking horse stalls, not bathroom stalls. Uh, <laughs> and so now I got Ethan in the mix, okay? So now Ethan, it's just me and Ethan, and Connor, he's got his guy, and then Jose, he's, he has his two guys. So year four ends. It's time to reproduce again. All right, so... So uh, we are not cutting you loose yet. Uh, Got to teach you some more. So you you have seen me do this before, so you can take him. And then uh, I'm setting you free. All right? This is your three. So I want y'all to end up somewhere else. But y'all got to go find new guys. All three of y'all. Okay? You coach them through it. You've done it. So, And uh, I'm going to show you how to do this. So come on. And then, hey, y- yell at Jacob right there. Okay. Jacob's coming. All right. And who'd y'all get? Okay, you, you're supposed to teach him to get one more. Yeah, come on. Everybody gets one. All right, move quick, fellas. Move quick. Come on. We only got a year to do this. All right, so now we're on year five. Focus. Focus. We're on year five. So, again, we're going to intentionally invest year five. And, uh, but now it's time to reproduce. So, uh, let's just make this simple. Everybody go grab a new person. Ready to go. Year five. Let's go. Come on. Doesn't have to be a guy. It can be a girl. It's fine. Now, year five. Listen. We're five years in, which, let's do the math here. Year one, we had two people. Year two, we had four. Year three, we had Eight, year four we had, so how many do we have this year? Come on, simple math, people. 16 plus 16. 32. All right, now focus, focus, focus. So year five of intentionally investing in people's lives. Cameraman's probably having a whole lot of fun with this, aren't you? Uh, get, get, get them too, you know. Include, include them over there. Um, we're low-budget films here, so we only have one camera. <laughs> So now we're at 32, and, and really, I, I kind of lost track here, but, um, 
but I, I've set now a couple of guys free. So now they're starting to spread out, not just here in Denton, but we're spreading out through, through Texas and the United States, being strategic, and where we're planting these new groups of guys. Uh, but now year five's over. All y'all have been invested in. And so let's go. Find somebody new to disciple. Year six, let's go. Find somebody. Come on, man. Got you now. What's up? All right. Make it quick. Just grab somebody close. All right, you're six. We're investing. You're six. We're teaching you who Jesus is, how to follow Jesus. I've still got my three. I just got a new, uh, a new guy, a third. I've set my, the guy that I have for three years. I, I've set him loose to go somewhere else. That's now happening in full force over there. Micah, he's got his whole train of guys over there, and he's setting guys loose, and then they're setting guys loose. So year six is over. Now it's time for year seven. Go find a new person. Let's go. Year seven. We're making disciples. We're being intentional. Listen. Listen. So we have to be intentional. All right. Y'all don't have to, like, meet each other. You're not literally going to disciple each other right now. So here's how this works. Everybody, let me get your attention. Let me get your attention. Shh. So we have to be intentional through this whole process of continuing to effectively and truthfully teach who Jesus is and how to follow Jesus. And part of teaching how to follow Jesus is, is showing them how to follow Jesus. And a big part of showing people how to follow Jesus is he was a disciple maker, so showing them how to make disciples. So you've got to remember... In this whole process, you're not just saying, okay, go find somebody to disciple. You're showing them how to do that. Once they've done that a couple times, then they're ready to be set free and begin the process somewhere else. So now we're going into year eight. So quickly, let's find, uh, let's do this one more time. Let's, re- let's reproduce this model. Find, find one new person. So you found, we're year eight. I have no idea the math at this point. Um, what is it? 256 or something like that. Okay, so year eight. Now we need to go into year nine and reproduce. But listen, now, now I want you to look at this. So people on the middle rows, y'all are the hardest to reach. Y'all are the unreached, hard to reach people groups. But then we have, then we have some people in the balcony too. And uh, that's like, now you're going to like Asia. So I do, need, I do need a couple people to go up there and get them. So it's year nine. We've got to reproduce this model again. So ready, set, go. Find somebody, uh, find somebody to disciple. Now, where you are, now where you are, here's, here's what I want you to see. Let's, let's, let's do some comparison here of the two models. Uh, we'll compare this, this discipleship model to the common model of today of the, you know, the big church, the big gathering, and uh, you know, one guy up at the front 
uh, who's known, you know, celebrity, whatever, hire the church staff to do the work. We'll compare it to that model, okay? So year, we'll, 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 say, um, we'll say year five, because we, we counted up to that earlier. What's year five in the discipleship model? 32, yeah, 32 people. So year five, you've got 32 people. Now, what do you have year five of the big church, typically how we do it today model? I just glanced, so I'm not doing the math in my head. But it would be 1,825 people. Now let's hold those numbers next to each other. Which one's more impressive? The big church model, for sure. Five years, boom. 1,825 people, or five years in, 32 people. Seems impressive, but don't get fooled by the flash in the pan. Don't be short-sighted. Again, it's simple math, and I'm about to show you. The simple math is going to simply make the megachurch, big conference model look stupid. And let me show you how. So, year 10, megachurch model. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying megachurch model. It's just our model today. Hire somebody to, to do all the work or whatever. That model, 3,650 people at year 10. But you look at this model, Sopship model, year 10, it's, it's catching up, but it's still not as impressive, 1,024 people. So, it's, I mean, now look, 10 years in, that's not very sexy, is it? Five years in, 32 people, that's not very sexy. That doesn't make you want to be like, dude, I want to be a part of this, sign me up, changing the world. So, 10 years in, you got 3,650 in the common model today, and you got 1,024 in the discipleship model. Year 15 is when you see a change. Fast forward 15 or five years, year 15, in the common model that we see today, you got 5,475. That's, that is a, you know, and think about this. You think about those of you who are on social media and really in on the Christian, you know, Twitter people and all that stuff, celebrity preachers and the big worship bands and all that. I mean, you think about, you know, the, the worship tours and the conferences and the mega church pastors that are celebrated. They're celebrated because they got 5,000 people coming to the church or more. Uh, and they're, they're looked at as, man, y'all the ones doing ministry right. And some of them are. But they're looked at that way purely because of they got three di- or they got four digits there. I'm not good at math. So 15 years in, 5,475 people in the common model today. 15 years in in the discipleship model, this is where it jumps. 32,768. Now, hold on. Year 20, let's fast forward five years. Because we, we, we made it 20 years earlier when we were talking about option number one. And we got to 7,300. That's a lot of people. That's a big church. I mean, if you're, if you're pastoring a church, leading a church... 7,300 people, you're going to be like, you're going to be leading conferences. People are going to be wanting to know, what are you doing? How are you growing your church? Okay? 20 years, 7,300 people. But in the discipleship model, 20 years, you got 1,048,576 people. Year 25, you got 9,125 people in the common model today. Year 25 in the discipleship model, 33,554,432, which to put that into perspective, that's, if I'm doing my math right, I think about 10% of the entire United States population, right? Because there's about 300 million people in the U.S. Year 30, 10,950 people. You see how this is slowing down? 
10,950 people in the common model today. Which again, I mean, dude, if you ever become a pastor and your church grows to 10,000, man, you're going to be asked to write books on how to do ministry. 10,950 people at 20 or at 30 years. 30 years, the discipleship model, 1 billion, 73 million, 741,824. That's like China-ish. <laughs> and let's just take it out three more years, and you'll see why three more years in a second. So 33 years, you got 12,045 in this model that's common today. 33 years in the discipleship model, 8.5 billion. That's more than what exists on the planet right now. You can have a seat. Now as you're sitting down, here's my question. Here's my question. What method do you think it was that caused Christianity to spread so rapidly throughout Europe and Asia in the first and second century? It's discipleship. Listen, discipleship's short game is not sexy. But discipleship's long game has no match. Now quickly, I want you to go all the way to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Now we're going to kick off this study. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now go back and look at that where it says, to Timothy, my beloved child. And I want you to underline that, my beloved child. It's interesting that Paul says that because Timothy was not Paul's biological son. Yet he calls them my beloved child. And here's why. Timothy was Paul's spiritual child, a spiritual son. If you read the Bible, the Bible is always showing how physical life can teach us so much about spiritual life. Here's a few examples. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. Physical example. And he goes on to say, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. The point that he's making is, uh, the point that he's making is spiritual birth is a lot like physical birth. In the same way that you cannot give birth to yourself physically, you cannot give birth to yourself spiritually. Impossible and weird. <laughs> Salvation or spiritual life, in other words, doesn't come from you. I mean, think about this. Physical, spiritual birth is a lot like physical birth. You can't give birth to yourself physically. Impossible. Think that out. Doesn't work. But if spiritual birth is just like physical birth, then why is it that so many in this room think that you have salvation, you have spiritual life in God somehow, because you've started going to church regularly and you've started you know, being more consistent in reading the Bible or you've stopped cussing or you've stopped having sex with your girl or you've stopped whatever it is. Those are all things that you can do. The Bible's so clear that salvation, new spiritual life, you can't make that happen in yourself because spiritual birth is like physical birth. God is the one, through Jesus, responsible for new spiritual birth. Matthew 4, 4 is another example. Jesus says, man doesn't live, he's quoting Deuteronomy, he says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, in the same way our bodies need food, our souls need God's word. And think about this, if, if you don't eat food for a while, then you're going to get hungry, eventually you'll get weak and unhealthy. Same is true spiritually. If you don't feed your soul God's word for a while, you're going to be hungering for that. Um, and, and then, and, and here's, how cra- here's how crazy this illustration breaks down. 
like how, how, par- how parallel it is. So like you think about this, you, you eat food, you get hungry. If you don't eat for a while, like you're really hungry. But if you don't eat three or four or five days, I don't know if you know this, but your stomach shuts down and you don't feel hunger pains anymore. Same is true spiritually. You know, if you're feasting on God's word and then you stop for a day, you're hungry for it. You want it. But the more time that separates you from the last time you ate, the less you feel those hunger pains. And if you don't eat for a while, then you start to get weak. You start to uh, get unhealthy spiritually. 1 Peter 2, 2 2-3, Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted uh, that the Lord is good. Hebrews 5, 12-14 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, or the adults, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So in the same way that as we grow physically, we progress from drinking milk to solid food, we, we have a similar progression, progression spiritually. Here's, here's, here's what the Bible's saying. Like when you're a baby and you're born, you've got to drink milk. You, you don't have teeth. You don't have the ability to gnaw on steak. So you start with milk. And even then, you can't even feed yourself at that point. So you have to be fed through a bottle or breastfed milk. But as the baby grows, as you grew when you were younger, you graduated to being spoon-fed, still not feeding yourself, but spoon-fed mashed-up peas and carrots. And as you develop teeth and your stomach and stuff started developing, then you grew into Cheerios and, this, and, then, and then solid food. And eventually you're feeding yourself. But, but then you graduate to, like, chicken, you know? And, but at this point, you know, you're able to feed yourself. But remember when dad still had to, like, cut up your chicken for you? Like, some of you are like, no, nah, my dad never did that. Okay, well, that was me uh, <clears throat> when I was, like, 20. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, like, dad was cutting up your chicken for you, or maybe he wasn't. But either way, like, you're still needing help eating. But eventually you graduate to where you're able to eat steak, cut it up yourself. The same is true spiritually. When you're just born spiritually, you start out drinking milk. And you have to be fed that milk. You're not ready to sit down necessarily. I mean, I encourage you, if you've put your faith in Christ, or even if you haven't, sit down, read the Gospel of John. Seriously. Do it on your own. You'll be fine. But it's hard to sit down and just you know, open up anywhere in the Bible and read it and understand it yourself when you're a baby believer. That's why it's so important to have somebody disciple you, take you, teach you about the Bible, but not only about the Bible, how to digest and chew on the Bible. Like how to understand it. And so as you develop spiritually, then you grow out of needing to be fed out of a bottle, and you're eventually able to cut up your chicken yourself, and, and you're able to take God's word and read it yourself. You, you, you look at some other examples of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul says, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So here's, here's the comparison. In the same way that it's important to train physically, it's even more important to train spiritually. The point in giving you these examples is to show you that our physical lives actually teach us a lot about our spiritual lives. And in many ways, you can gauge where you are at spiritually Uh, by seeing the parallels between the physical life and the spiritual life. Here's why I'm saying all of this. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. And he says, Timothy, my beloved what? Child or son, depending on your translation. One common sign of physical maturity or physical adulthood 
is children. Like most adults have children. Um, you know, Mar- uh, Mar- Leslie and I have been married for, uh, for eight and a half months now. And uh, we're really excited to tell you tonight that um, we're, not, we're not pregnant. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> they go... <laughs> We're not pregnant, but everybody is constantly asking us, when are you going to start making babies? And uh, I mean, like, seriously, month one, our, like, day one, we walk off the platform, got married right here. Somebody's like, when are y'all going to make babies? Or before we got married, they're like, when are you going to make babies? I'm like, well, not right now. Uh, <laughs> want to, but not right now. Uh, now, everybody's always asking us, when are you going to make babies? And you've got to stop asking us that because it's getting in her head. Now she, all she talks about is baby. We're driving back from Atlanta the other day. And uh, we put like 4,000 miles on the car this holiday. It was nuts. Uh, and so I'm driving. It's like the last leg. And I'm like kind of getting drowsy and stuff. And I thought she was asleep. And all of a sudden she pops up and she goes, hey, what do you want to name our kids? And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> uh, we almost died, you know. But everybody's asking, when, do you wanna make, or when are you going to make babies? Of course, when they ask, they kind of turn and look at me and give me this look as if to say, you're getting kind of old. Uh, <laughs> You know, you don't want to be 80 when your kids are graduating college. Uh, They're always saying, you know, when are you going to make babies? And listen, my question for you tonight is this. Spiritually speaking, when are you going to start making babies? (laughs) I really thought that would work with college students, but I guess (laughs) not with high school, but I thought it would work with college students. Listen, uh, now, get over that and, and hear me. Spiritually speaking... I can't even say it. (laughs) Y'all, this is so important to see. Okay, we can laugh through it, but you got to see this. Spiritually speaking. (laughs) Shoot. Okay. All right. In all seriousness, you you got to see this. Spiritually speaking, when are you going to start making babies? Spiritually speaking, when are you going to start having children? Like one of the number one signs of spiritual maturity or spiritual adulthood is having spiritual sons and daughters. I mean, some of you, you've been believers for a long time. And if that's you, my question is, where are your kids? Do you have any? Some of you, honestly should have kids who should already be making kids. Like some of you should be spiritual grandparents. I mean, what's sad to me is unless you are by God's grace hearing and taking to heart this message tonight, some of you, if not many of you, you're going to be 80 years old sitting in a church when you could have great, 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 great grandkids in the faith and you're not going to have any. What a wasted life. Spiritually speaking, my great-grandfather is a guy named Arliss Dickerson. Arliss was a college pastor for like 40 years up at Arkansas State University. And he discipled a guy named Bruce Venable. He discipled a lot of guys. One of them was Bruce Venable. Bruce Venable is like my grandfather in the faith. And Bruce, which is kind of cool, like I've gotten to... I spent four and a half years ended up working for Bruce. So in some ways, he's been a a direct discipler of me. But he discipled a guy named Kevin Inman. Kevin Inman, who's now a college pastor at Louisiana Tech, he was my college pastor 
when I was in college. And he discipled me and still to this day is um, mentoring me, discipling me. He's my father in the faith, spiritually speaking. You know what's even crazier to think is, do you realize that there are probably, in fact, likely some, if not many in this room, who are great, 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 something great grandkids of Paul? I mean, think about where his ministry was. He, he was like the dude who God used to project Christianity into Europe. And, and a lot of you have ancestors from Europe. I do. So back to what I said at the beginning. When you and I catch a vision for discipleship, that's when the world begins to change. When you and I stop giving the command to go and make disciples lip service and actually embrace that, make it our personal, unrelenting ambition... That's when the world is going to begin to change. Conferences don't change the world. We have more conferences than ever in the U.S. right now. And again, as those get bigger, God's kingdom in America gets smaller. Big worship gatherings, they don't change the world. Big famous preachers that know how to alliterate and make words fit together in 140 characters or less and it sounds awesome it gets thousands of retweets those guys don't change the world disciple makers change the world now there are some pastors of big churches who are disciple makers but i'm just going to go out on the edge and say there's a lot maybe even more that aren't disciple makers change the world therefore 2017 and every moment from here forward has to be about one thing and that's us making disciples If you're a believer in Jesus, you have been given this call to give your life to this mission. So here's my challenge to you. What you've heard from me, whether you've been here for the past six years or just the past six months, entrust it to faithful people who will then turn around and entrust it to others. We don't do overflow just so you can have something fun to fill your time with on Tuesday nights. We do overflow because we've been given a command to complete a mission, and the mission is to build and battle. Remember the message from last semester, Luke 14, Jesus has called us, Jesus is on a mission to build his kingdom and battle for the hearts of mankind, he's called us to be a part of it. So to overflow, that's what we're trying to do, raise up the next generation of builders and battlers who will then raise up the next generation of builders and battlers, who will then raise up the next generation of builders and battlers, and so on. We have four big prayers in our ministry, and the fourth prayer is this, that everything we do would move us closer to making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples in every corner and crevice of our campuses, our country, our campuses, our community, our country, and our world. And so the question tonight is, are you doing that? Are you, are you I mean, look at your life. Some of you, you, you're newborn believers, so right now I'm not talking to you in this moment right here, ready, go. But some of you have been believers for a while. You should be spiritual adults. But my question for you is, is there evidence that you're a spiritual adult? Do you have children? Are you making spiritual babies? And, and if you should be, but, but you don't have them yet, are you at least trying to? But if you should be and you don't have those spiritual children yet, 
and you're also not trying to, then why aren't you trying? Every single one of us has been called to make disciples. So I'm inviting you to join me in that mission. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.